First up is Vivian. You're going to read us. I believe some poetry, right? Hi, uh, my name is Vivian. Uh, this poem is called A Postmortem. Clemency stagnates. You'll never know why. In the yoke, the sky strips its skin for you. It testifies with the stars. They bring you to your knees. The whole world's feeling moments of infinity, silence and screaming. Your corpse smoked for its last purple juices. Your mother is inseminated by a saint in a purple raincoat. The rain carries out its threat. When it rains, Clemency hides. Agony's honor carries a winged brightness. The sun wears its albino uniform. Your poems to yourself are translated without your ego. You offer yourself awfully, tasting your mother's sharp destiny. Sweat crystallizes in the unspoken inevitability. Decapitated sun and trees. I won't see you dying. <clears throat> Clemency, have mercy. The firmament hangs out to dry. Pinholes in the sky smuggle out your last poem. You try to resist future's ruin. Insubordinate, even against yourself, you wash your holy hands in a stagnant milk fever. Clutch the golden grind of translation. Wrap your subterranean heart in banana leaves. Clemency detonates, hot in this home. Others loved me on my knees. I rubbed their bunions and foreskin. They gave me night with no borders. You get the rain of silence and screaming, shackles without language. They steal your purple juices to show me humanness otherness. No one looks for you in the yoke. You're listening to Grotto Pod. This is Susie Gerhard, and today's episode is a special edition on the Grotto's Rooted and Written, a literary workshop series by and for writers of color that launched this past September. I was lucky enough to witness and record part of the second event on September 29th here at the Grotto. Our show today will include a few more readers, a few more sounds from the closing event, and a wrap-up discussion with some of the organizers. We have a core member of the Rooted and Written organizing team here to walk us through this program, Melissa Pandika. Melissa, what were we just listening to? Grotto member Roberta Lovato introduced Vivian Tran, who read her work at the Rooted and Written closing party. So where did this all start? We can find out by listening in on a conversation with the Rooted and Written organizers about how this initiative came about. Who wants to start? Well, I'm Jesus Francisco Sierra, and I'm a member of the Grotto here and the Advisory Council, and I was uh, involved in the Rooted and Written um, group that initiated this thing. I'm Aditi Malhotra. I've been at the Grotto since June 2019. Um, and I am a proud member of the core committee of the Perooted and Written. We uh, just launched this program, and I hope that I continue to be a part of it next year as well. My name is Susan Ito. I've been a Grotto member since 2013, and um, I was a um, onlooker supporter of Rooted and Written at first, and then. It was so irresistible to me, I couldn't help but come into the organizing team about halfway through. So Susan is, Susan is the type that, while she hesitated at the beginning, she's, uh, 
she's one that always you know lingers in the back in the racetrack, and when it really takes off, she sprints to the front. <laughs> so she was very instrumental in the whole process. But do we want to talk about how how it came about? Yeah, we were talking about earlier. I, I guess because I'm the newer entrant into the into the grotto, but I'd love to know more from you, Susan, about how. Uh, this whole idea came about, I think it was sometime last year when uh, the seeds were being planted for it. Yes, I think um, it was maybe even before last year that um, the Grotto had a committee called the Going Forward Committee that was really our first attempt at self-organizing and self-governing, which had not happened in the first 24 years. We've been very loose collective here and really did not have much organization. So one of the things that Going Forward Committee did was to do a demographics um, study to see who is it that... um, who are we? Who are we here at the Grotto? And it was not a huge surprise, but to see it in um, hard data to understand that I think over 70% of us uh, turn out to be um, uh, white women of a certain age. And so that was something that we learned that um, we were not as diverse as we hoped, or we, we weren't really reflecting the greater Bay Area or the Bay Area writing community, and we decided that that was something that we really wanted to change and make an effort towards changing. Yeah, and I, and I thought that, you know, we, we began to see, even though the, the Going Forward Committee had noted that, I did see, you know, we kept seeing uh, emails about, hey, we have, you know, new members coming in, and it seemed to be just about every week we had two new members and the members seemed to still fall within the same demographics as before. Um, and so, um, I, I, you know, Roberto, who's not here, who was, was conceived the idea, Roberto Lovato, he, uh, you know, we kind of kicked around the idea of, of doing something um, about it. He came up with this idea of putting together um, this this event, so to speak, if you want to call it that. Um, I think he called it an initiative an to initiative. start. It was an initiative yeah. Yeah. Um, in order to, to start changing um, our, our community. Yeah, and really the goal is to, you know, diversify and, you know, basically make the whole community more inclusive. And we found a lot of supporters throughout. Um, and then, I, you know, I, I was curious. I was asking Aditi earlier as to she had only been here two or three months. And I was wondering why, you know, what... And she was very instrumental. Her, along with Melissa and Vanessa, were really instrumental in getting this thing pushed forward. They did, you know, the bulk of the work, actually. Um, so I was asking her why why she dedicated so much time. She just simply got here. So I'd like to ask Aditi. Well, um, so when I joined the Grotto in June 2019, okay, here's a little bit about how I got to know about it. Um, so I'm, I'm an Indian uh, journalist and writer. I moved to San Francisco just last year, and it was through a co- community that I had already established through my journalism school that I learned about this community, and I was actively seeking a writing community in the Bay Area, which was really, really hard to find because it's kind of buried under um, sort of the digital landscape uh, of San Francisco especially. So I was really pleased um, 
to find my way here and all I had known and heard about the grotto at the time was the spirit of the community and uh, sort of the active uh, resource sharing that members uh, had 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 here since uh, you know since ever since the grotto has been around so there was there was a lot of positive things that brought me to the grotto but as soon as I got here I knew that I had a mission uh, in addition to all the other writers of color who are part of this uh, community that we need to open up um, the space and the resources that we have to other writers of color like me who are also seeking community and I would actually add desperately seeking community here in the Bay Area. Um, so it was, it was, I was sharing with Jesus that we, I didn't really need too much of an incentive uh, to be a part of this initiative because uh, it was so heartfelt the first time Roberto I, I remember I was sitting in the aisles and I'm just working also trying to just sort of like focus on my screen because I was like I don't know anybody here still um, but Roberto was really kind with his time and energy in explaining how this could help our community um, and so it wasn't it didn't it didn't it didn't take too much to know that uh, that we had to work together to 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 create this space um, and and to create um, more uh, more of an inclusive space for for people out there who are like me like I said who are looking for us my whole question was you know how do people of color actually hear about the grotto I was really asking a question about how the membership came about I remember before all this happened kind of asking around, well, how does, how does it, do they advertise, how does it, and it was mostly word of mouth, so the key was how do we get the word out, essentially, um, and so that would, that was kind of like what, what, we need to do something to broadcast this out to people who normally probably wouldn't have access to it, um, so, I mean, I know, and Susan, you started out, like I said, in the back of the pack, but then you moved forward, what changed your mind? Uh, for me, what changed my mind was the incredible dedication and energy and passion in this small group of organizers who were doing what seemed to be, um, I wouldn't say impossible because it didn't prove to be impossible at all, but um, very ambitious. I thought the idea of doing this multi-class, multi-teacher, multi-day event and putting it all together in three months seemed extremely ambitious and I was a little dubious at first. I said, why don't we wait till next year? Why don't we wait till January? Um, but Roberto felt, you know, he was our engine and he felt very strongly that if we wanted to do this, we had to do it now. We had to do, we had to go big and we had to, he was also really um, committed to the idea that it was going to be free of charge. And um, he put the word out to the um, writers of color at the Grotto saying, are, you know, are you behind this? Will you um, volunteer to teach? Will you volunteer to help? And I, I, I'd say the response that we got from everyone at the Grotto, I mean, almost everyone, mm -hmm. um, was one of incredible support as well as gratitude that someone is taking the bull by the horns and doing something about it because we've been, I think, in a way, um, wringing our hands for a long time, saying, how can we change things? We want to change things. But nobody really was putting forth a, an idea of what can we do? What, what can we do besides saying, we really want to diversify our membership, but how can we do that? 
And Roberto had this idea and it, it felt very radical and very big and a little scary. But as soon as I started meeting with the, the core group, I was so inspired. And it was, for me, it was a huge bonding experience. And I feel like we all got so much closer in putting it together and working out a lot of logistical details of like, you know, there were so many questions and so many levels that this thing had. And um, from marketing to pedagogy and, and teaching and, and money and food and all the things. So um, I think actually doing the work um, energized us to do the work. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, it's just, as you're talking, I'm realizing how, you know, there's just so much that goes, that went into that. And you got the website, you have the advertising, you have all the forms. None of that was in place. None of it. Yeah, everything everything, happened. Everything happened. From scratch. From scratch. And so, and even the decision as to how do we choose. You know, we, we, we limited the days, you know, we just only had 10 days, right, for applications. Is that right? So, we had 100 almost 170, it was 160 something mm-hmm. applicants. And then trying to make the decision, how do we choose the ones for this? We have such limited space. But I, you know, I think Aditi, you know, in the absence of Melissa and Vanessa who aren't here, can speak to the amount of effort it took. That's why I'm, I'm so in awe of what they did because a lot of this, she's the digital queen over here. She <laughs> was able to generate all kinds of great stuff. I mean, maybe some of the hurdles that, that you dealt with. I, yeah, sure. I feel like there were challenges galore, but one thing I do want to say is that in this established and burgeoning startup landscape that the Bay Area, that we see in the Bay Area, this was the one that I feel a lot of us who were part of the core committee were wanting to see come to life, that like, how can we create something from scratch and scale it up? And um, there's, I mean, we have evidence and numbers that we got over 160 applications. So clearly, like we were, we were serving a huge uh, need, and there was, uh, we didn't even need to conduct a survey of who out there was looking for us. Or you know, once we opened applications, and you're right, Jesus, we had 10 days, which initially seemed like, oh, are we going to get enough people um, to know about this program? How fast can we get the word out? But even though we we could do much better in getting the word out because I feel like there's still so many people out there, so many writers out there who need to, who we would like to see come be part of our community. Um, there's so much work, more work that we can do with outreach. And I'm sure like in the future, once we have funding, a lot of those uh, things will, you know, feel more streamlined. But, but I, I just... I feel like I can't, I still can't get over how overwhelming the response to the call was. Um, so over 160 applications for 35 spots. And uh, I feel like next year the class is going to be bigger. But some of the challenges were just like what what, what sort of any startup, you know, encounters is that we were, we were testing and trying different things uh, that could work and learning as we go. So, so creating the application form uh, to how are we gonna how are we gonna rate the applic- uh, you know, or or how are we gonna decide who's got more merit than the other and who's gonna be a part of the class. How can we serve those who weren't who didn't make it to the program? Um, how do we set the classes up? We also were dealing with limited space because all of the classes were held here at the Grotto, in addition to one venue that we had in the East Bay uh, for one of the classes. But but it was it was a whole, 
I feel like this whole system creation um, and and putting processes into place. Uh, and I feel like there was so much collective creative energy just among the five of us uh, to start with that there, I don't know, I feel like the more the heads, the better this can be. But, but it was quite incredible how we just needed intent from five people to figure out what this system and what this workshop series should look like. So the end product is Rooted and Written, a literary workshop series by and for writers of color. Uh, and we stuck with that. Um, so it was, it, was, it, was, it was a great alignment of uh, so many different things. And uh, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things that we can do much better next year. Uh, but we know what mistakes we have to learn from. Yeah, I, no. I, I was going to say that you know one of the things that surprised me that was really good um, was when we often talk about the demographics of the Bay Area and how it's so drastically changed over the last ten years or fifteen years even. And what was really cool to see was the cross range, the just of the the variety, the ethnic variety that we got on the, uh, from the applicants. It wasn't any one thing. It's so it was so re really to my mind reflective of where I grew up in the city, in terms of the number of people that came in. It wasn't any one group, you know, that, and, which was worked out to our benefit because we were able to, and it was pretty evenly distributed, right? I mean, we had everything from, you know, from, from Latinos to, to uh, you know, Asian, uh, and just, you know, African-American. We had just a nice cross-section of folks. Um, and it wasn't, you know, tilted one way or another. Uh, but I, I think it's nice, and I think it goes to, to the fact that they're hidden. They're hidden in the weeds. Their voices are, are somewhat, you know, silenced. And I think it was great to be able to offer them a place where they can actually be heard. And some of the things we heard in the, when, in, in the space after we did the after, you know, was one of the things that I heard most is, man, I, I felt like people here understand me kind of thing. It was, it was really nice to hear at the end of it all, right? but this is the second page of a novel that I called uh, Dog Eat Dog. The protagonist is um, a young African-American -Amer male named Godot Perdue. Oh, and he's just been fired. Okay. <laughs> As I pack up, fitting everything into my backpack and hand over my office keys, I find myself thinking about how I came to this town. Eight years ago, all black Mr. Smith comes to Washington, and then I ended up in Oz, pulling the curtain away, and found not just one man pulling the strings, but a whole industry. It is one thing to say democracy is sold to the highest bidder, as it is another thing to see the auction in person. I started my bike, and I let it warm up while I put my helmet, gloves, and glasses on. I most deaf had to have music for the drive home. So I pulled out my Walkman cassette radio player, and I got on my bike, put one of my headphones in and pulled out a cassette tape, the one with Public Enemy and Ice-T for the drive home of Highway 1 from Northeast DC to University Park. And as I drove, blaring PE in one ear, Chuck D shouting, 1989, the number, another summer. And it reminded me that I moved to University Park, Maryland in 1989 after earning my BA in International Relations, minoring in Chinese specializing in the People's Republic because everybody else was specializing in the Soviet Union or Japan. 
When I graduated from Elmwood High School, my dad had told me, we have enough military men, blue collar workers, public servants, and postal workers in the Purdue lineage. As well spoken as I was, my dad would say, I should go out there and do good. I should be a politician, the diplomat of the family. I had gotten accepted to University College in Maryland and had been working there while going to grad school. But at 30, I'm finding I can't go with it. Besides, 1989 was not just another number. It was the year the Berlin Wall came down. Free elections were being held in the Soviet Union and Solidarity won elections in Poland. A ceasefire stopped the Angolan Civil War. Even the Chileans were voting to end military rule. Salman Rushdie's Satanic Verses, a great novel, made more popular by the threat of fatwa. <laughs> it was the year that the 14th Dalai Lama received the Nobel Peace Prize and in Beijing students were rioting for democracy. While here in the United States, 18, 1989 was the year of the Iran-Contra scandals, the Keating Five scandals, and Marion Barry was busted for smoking crack at the Mayflower Hotel in DC marking the beginning of my front row view of the hypocrisy, the manipulation, the cynicism, the pessimism, the back scratching, and the back biting. It seemed like everywhere else in the world, the people were trying to take back their power, fighting for democracy, for socialism. But in America, democracy was flawed and failing, shady beyond dirty. Now, eight years later, I'm feeling pretty done with this fake democracy. Woo! That was Crystal Perkins, another reader at the Rooted and Written closing party. Chuck D., that totally brought me back. What are we going to hear next, Melissa? We asked participants for a broad range of feedback. As part of our effort to make the grotto more welcoming and inclusive of writers of color, we wanted to know what participants' perceptions were of the grotto before Rooted and Written. We also asked them how they felt like the experience fit into their broader writing trajectory. I have a quick question for you. Since yes. you've been at the grotto, and the structure and the vision has changed. What encouraged you to apply before that? Because I'm my mother's son and I am unflappable, man. <laughs> Quite frankly. Um, you know, I mean, and whatever you're going to do in publishing, you're going to have to have this indefatigable part of yourself just smash through the door mm -hmm. and impose the will of your beautiful self. <laughs> right? So, um, so now. What other ideas? Well, I've been talking to people in, in both of the days that we've been here, and we're all here as writers of color, and I find that many of them, like myself, don't have other um, platforms, other workshops in which they can participate and feel comfortable. So I'm just wondering if there's some way that we couldn't maybe occupy some space here, even if it's just like once a month and have a Writers of Color workshop where we come in. And even if you want to make it specific, one week, one month, people who are writing short stories, the other people who are in poetry, or, you know, however, it can be done. But if we could have a place where we could all meet. Like Occupy New York, Occupy the Grotto? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm down with it. I'm not for the whole Grotto's down. I'm down with it. <laughs> yeah. uh, who else? Amanda. Um, so I just had an incident this week. I'm getting a piece published, which is great, but the editor is white male, which it usually is, um, and they asked me to translate all the Spanish words in the piece in parenthesis in English. Uh, which, yeah, I mean, so it's great to hear that aff affirmation, right, because the comment just seemed so by the book, right? AP Style says, 
journalistically, you have to translate every word in parentheses, which I think disrupts the flow yes. mm -hmm. and centers white audiences, which is not what my audience was. The piece is about being a queer person of color, mm -hmm. and I pitched it that way, so he knows that. Um, so I don't know how to respond to this person, and five years ago, when I would get comments like that, I wouldn't respond. I would just take their edits and say I don't have power in this situation, so I'm just going to let them lead. Um, but even now I'm realizing it's frustrating to me that now I know I should push back, but I still don't know how. Mm -hmm. I don't have like resources of other publications that do this differently. I don't know how to combat AP style. I don't know like examples of writers who do have prestige who have argued against this. There were so many subtle, important points made in that conversation in September. Many of those points dealt with ways we could continue the community building we began with Rooted and Written so that it's more than just a one-off initiative. Here's Susan talking about how we've already taken steps toward this broader vision. Yeah, it was really, it was really moving and um, just kind of this almost incredulousness that this existed from a lot of the, both the applicants and the, the participants. And um, one of the things uh, that we really felt committed to was to offer something to the people that we weren't able to offer a space to. And so we when we said we're really sorry we're not able to offer you a space because it was so so um, limited the numbers we were able to accommodate um, we wanted to be able to offer them something and so we are hosting two um, write-ins will they be able to come and um, get some writing prompts form community get some snacks and be able to write together um, for two Friday nights coming up in the fall. And those are for the, that we're just offering that to the people who applied, who, who didn't get a spot this time. Hopefully, you know, some of them will get a spot next year. One of the other decisions that we made um, early on is that the people who um, uh, were chosen for Rooted and Written this year will not be able to apply next year so that we can offer it to as many people as possible. It's like a one-time thing. We did um, open it up that we would love to have them come back as volunteers, um, but we really don't want the same people to be coming back um, over and over. And many of the people who um, uh, didn't get in wrote us back and said, wow, that was one of the nicest rejection letters I've ever gotten, and you actually gave me something back. So we felt really that we were that we're trying to um, not just say, sorry, you know, this is a great opportunity, but you can't come. Um, and we're hoping that we'll have other opportunities. We're planning on open mic series, lecture series, more of these write-ins, and um, other opportunities throughout. And we also um, re are really encouraging everyone to come and take advantage of our regular grotto uh, classes. They've just, we were only able to offer like a, a tiny taste of, of what we have in terms of teaching writing. And we encourage them to check out, you know, the many uh, long-term classes, the, the full day classes and the six week classes that we offer through through the grotto. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um Mentorship Mondays is the other ones that... Oh, that Mentorship Mondays, that's right. Which is, uh, what is it, once a month? Is that what we mm -hmm, decided? Mm -hmm. uh, offer them some time to come in and some uh, and have talks. Uh, they can come in for free for an hour. People have volunteered to come in and, and you know, share some knowledge, basically. Uh, give them that opportunity. Norman Zemaya. Esa señora es firme. Was what my Chicano brothers and sisters would have said to me. I wasn't quite sure what it meant, but if it meant that this woman was determined to bring her child through this world, 
this unkind bureaucracy of take a number of cheap carpeting and bulletproof glass, taken by the wrist and follow blue arrows through narrow corridors to sit and wait, sit and wait in a dull room until her number hit. If it meant filling out reams of applications, stopping many times to apologize and ask for help. Ask what does this mean? Ask what if I don't have that? Does that hurt her son? Was there nothing then? No, no. All I meant was she had to sit and wait, sit and wait some more until she received approval and services, which she then gathered in a thick clutch of papers to present to teachers in IEP meetings. Proof. Aquí está, maestros. Whatever they needed to teach Osvaldo, whatever they needed, they only had to ask. Please, por favor, maestros, aquí está. Whatever else, dingame. No, that's all for now, senora, that's all. So Doña Lucera got up extra early to make sure Osvaldo was on time and ready to learn to read and write and make friends and have a good school experience like anyone else wanted for their child. If that's what it meant to be firme, then Doña Lucera was firme as fuck, chinga su madre. That was love. Sometimes it was masked by a briskness and impatience with wanting to be heard. Perdone, maestro, for cutting you off or by the despair of asking why. Why is my son this way? It was overcome by the shame of having to respond to gente wondering what's wrong with your hijo or worse yet, blame, like what, I, what did I do? Was it my fault, maestro? Did I do this to somehow, sin querer? It looked curt, ungracious at times, but it was love for real, unconditional, and she soldiers on, carried on by the enormous amor de madre, damn it. I remember Osvaldo's emphatic refusal to go to school. I heard them coming down the hallway, the no quiero escuela, getting progressively louder until they appeared in the doorway. My students calling out, buenos dias Osvaldo, unfazed. It was no quiero, no quiero, no quiero, each and every single day as she dropped him off late. 30 minutes into the school day, stamping his feet as she gave instructions to portate bien, escucha maestro, and then entered in brief negotiations as he clutched her waist. ¿Quieres loud house? Sí. ¿Quieres loud house? Sí. Okay, entonces, listen to maestro, and at home, te doy loud house. But as she moved to leave, he screamed and grabbed her wrist, no, no, wait, un beso, un beso, mamá. Okay, un beso y me voy. So she kissed the top of his head, but then he threw his arms around her neck and held on for dear life. Ya, Osvaldo. Ya. Un beso, mamá. Te quiero decir algo. Osvaldo. Osvaldo. And at that point, I had to intervene, slip between them so Daniel Lucero could pry herself loose. Turn and walk away. Osvaldo collapsed over my shoulder, sobbing miserably, slobber soaking into my shirt. Doña Lucero down the middle of that wide hallway, fist pumping low at her sides. In her mind, I imagined rolling through all the things she needed to get done before making her way back to pick up Osvaldo at the end of the day. No, senora, Doña Lucero, it wasn't anything you did. But eventually, Osvaldo was happy and curious and liked to listen to stories because of you. He would sit with me and one other student, and we would picture walk through storybooks before I directed him to read. And his first move was always, no quiero leer. Osvaldo, no quiero. Osvaldo, how do you get what you want? No quiero leer, no. Doña Lucera told me to call her if I ever struggled with Osvaldo. So then I'd move for the phone. No, sorry, maestro. No, sorry, maestro. How do you get what you want? Palabras amables. Gracias, Osvaldo. No call, mamá. Let's read, Osvaldo. I'm sorry. Un beso, maestro. No, Osvaldo. Let's read. Un beso, mamá. Si, Osvaldo. A kiss for your mother. You sad, maestro? 
No, Osvaldo. Let's read. <laughs> okay, maestro. And he pointed to a word and froze his brow. That was all you, senora. Wow. That was San Francisco's own Norman Zelaya. What's next for Rooted and Written, Melissa? The next clip features the Rooted and Written organizers discussing feedback they got about how to make this initiative sustainable in the years to come, as well as how to keep it as accessible as possible to writers of color of all experience and skill levels. I really felt that energy-wise, you know, there was a lot of energy that went into this, so it's nice to get that energy in return from the group when they showed up. Um, and it's sort of like, it's funny because I'm almost, I feel like I'm hoping that somebody that was here hears this because I think that there's, the energy was, was sort of, uh, it was reciprocal, right? So we put a lot of energy into doing, doing this thing. Then once it happened, um, we felt the energy from them sort of reflected back to us, giving us the impetus and the, you know, the want to want to do more. I think some of the comments we had, you know, mentioned before, I think there was some couple people that mentioned that, hey, this is, this is probably just a one of, you know, sort of like a token thing. Uh, that's not the way we feel at all. Uh, I mean, the whole idea is, is what's that? You know, we're not just giving you a fish; we're teaching you to fish. We're going to fish as a community, right? This is uh, so. I I sort of felt like it's really something that it's it, so, suddenly it's got a certain inertia to it that's going to gain <clears throat> gain you know moving forward. And I think it's just engagement of community, man. That's that's a big deal, you know. Uh, it, it really is. Yeah, I I mean I feel like the through line through all of this was the spirit and generosity of community. Um, and Rooted and Rooted is not, is, that that sort of spirit is not outside of the grotto. Like the program kind of fed into that spirit that the grotto embodies. Um, and and it was, it's just, it's great to see. I mean, when you, it, it's simple things like when you see a comment on an Instagram post or, you know, or you see a tweet and, and that's all sort of like virtual community building. But then these are all people who got here, saw us in person, we met them. Um, and it was, it was just sort of this, uh, bonding is the right word, but also sort of building a, a, a new family. Um, and it felt like people are, are really wanting to, to be there for each other. And, 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 and I feel like writers have a special sort of penchant for community because so much about it, so much about what we write are the words that come out, the voices that are heard are about, you know, they're not, they, they're not sort of coded. <laughs> they're not, they're not in code. They're real, they're real voices. So, so how can we do this without, uh, without the spirit of community? There's no way that that can be done. So, so I feel like that's the, that's the push and that's also the outcome. Um, and would we have it any other way? No, of course not. I wanted to also point out that, you know, we did this 100% on volunteer effort it was all volunteer, and um, it was offered free to the participants, um, but that we really don't have the capacity, either energetically or in any other way, to keep offering things. We can't keep asking our teachers to volunteer their time. We can't keep organizing these things, you know, just, you know, indefinitely like this, because it, it did take a huge amount of energy. So um, one of the things that we're hoping for is to get funding in the future, we're really hoping that we can get grants, uh, maybe some individual donors to help us make it even bigger and better next year. And um, one of the other uh, 
I'd say comments, semi-criticism that we that we got at the end is um, that we weren't paying our teachers and that um, we recognize that and it's something that we really want to change for next year. Um, we don't think teachers and writers should be doing their labor for free. Um, and so we're hoping to get funding so that we can pay the writers, I mean, and the teachers, we can pay for, um, you know, all the things that took so much volunteer hours and blood, sweat and tears this time. And we feel very committed that we want to grow the program in a variety of different ways, but we need to have funding for it. So we're thrilled that uh, the Grotto is now um, fiscally sponsored, so we're able to take in grants um, and donations and hopefully make it even better next year. Yeah, I want to sort of piggyback on what Aditi said earlier, too, about the fact that I think the actual comment was that they, quote, they should be they should be paying you, was a quote from from the comment. And, and my point to, to the person who noted it was that we are the they, and, and that it's not, we're not separating ourselves, just like Aditi said, from the Guado as a whole. We are part of the community, uh, and we just want to continue that that sort of you know tradition moving forward and I I do think you know the other thing is that we went through we read a lot we read pretty much everybody that submitted everybody we read through, and sometimes more than once and more more than one of us read through these things and there's a lot of good writers of color in the Bay Area we only we only lit in 35 because that's all we had room for we had to make some choices but there were people that did not make it that are really excellent. And, and of the ones that came, mm. I was really amazed. I mean, I, I taught a class, and I thought for a minute there, I said, well, they should be teaching the class, not me. There, mm -hmm. There's some really smart and really great writing uh, in this. And it's just, it's surprising to me that, that they're that, um, that good. And it's just, you know, they've just kind of been hidden and, you know, not, their voices aren't really heard. Yeah, so. I agree that the quality was outstanding. Um, overall and the fact that they still these are a lot of them very professional level writers and the fact that they still felt the need and the desire to be part of this I think was really telling and um, our decision process was not just who is the best writer um, they were all amazing writers that we chose but it was also um, we wanted to have a range of beginner um, intermediate and advanced writers. A lot of people um, were very modest and I said called themselves beginners or intermediates when they clearly weren't. But we wanted to have a range of backgrounds, both in terms of writing experience and as well as genre books. We had some poets, we had fiction writers, nonfiction writers, journalists, um, playwrights, and we really wanted to have a, um, a spread of different genres. Who, who were gonna be part of it as well. So it wasn't just the very top writers. There were unfortunately a lot of quote unquote very top writers that we had to um, say no to this time. I just caught a glimpse, a little soundbite of her capabilities in Ma's class and I raised high expectations for Priti. Thank you. This poem is, takes its first line from an Amiri Baraka poem, but it might as well be called to my hinge date who just texted me, why is sexism so important? <laughs> uh, why is it? Poems are useless. Poems are useless unless they are pepper spray, stinging cries for change, girls dancing fearless at night. 
I want poems my mother couldn't write in her book of recipes. I want them like golden brown onions, sizzling and done when fully translucent, free of color, like wishes with no commas and semicolons holding them back. I want a poem for the man whose idea of heaven is an accidental side brush with a woman's side boob. <laughs> I want it to be the missing 21 cents for every dollar in her salary slip. I want poems with lines, each line a line that my sisters conceal under skin lightening foundation. Mm. Secrets my aunts hide under telephone lines over noise of television soap. Each her and her and her a particle of raw dust birthing storms. Each her a particle of dust that cooks, creates cradles, but never settles. Thank you. I love that poem. That was Preeti Vangani reading at the closing party. It took a lot to get to the point where we had a closing party. Yes, it did. <laughs> Here are the organizers talking more about the nuts and bolts of organizing Rooted and Written, which drew from the collective creativity of our team. Special shout out to core team member Vanessa Cabrera, who was instrumental to Rooted and Written in numerous ways, not the least of which included screen printing the tote bags we gave out to participants, solo and by hand. <laughs> I spoke a little bit about how we built the whole system to, to sort of make this come to life. But, but another great example of, of sort of the DIY things that we did was right from the, the tote bag uh, that we gave out to um, our participants um, to, uh, you know, Susan didn't, didn't just step in with, to provide pedagogical support, but she did. She made stickers. We had, I mean, that was, it was just incredible to see how much creative energy there is at the grotto among all of us that we can really make uh, uh, the small like we can take care of the smallest details that can go into a program as important and as um, as needed as rooted and written uh, even the, I, I'm remembering now like the way the name came about um, I think we had bits and pieces on rooted and then there was some imagery you see that on the website that uh, that our logo is a is a flowering cactus um, how that came about how we thought how can we have a name without uh, without it written so the ad the ad to rooted and uh, you know the, the written ad to to the title was was just it, it was incredible how we all had differences in opinions, like internally, but that was an, a vulnerability that we turned into great strength. Um, and I, I'm still, I'm still thinking constantly about how much, uh, you know, how much creative energy was was felt um, in the run up to rooted and written through those two weeks. And now we only have to keep keep the momentum going. Yeah, it was really satisfactory to see, particularly when we got the. Uh, the, I love the sort of the, the conclusions, the, the times, you know, everybody, you know, getting their comments in and, and us really listening to them. And particularly, like, after the first weekend, you know, after everybody left, we, you know, a lot of us, you know, sat right here in the lobby and just started, you know, talking what we do, what are things. And there were things that were implemented from the first weekend to the second weekend based on the comments that they mentioned at the end week. So we were really we were really on it in terms of them being and and their their evaluations, almost all of them, it was they all said this was really well organized. 
which was, wow. I mean, yeah. for something I can put together that quick. Behind the scenes was pretty chaotic, but it's always good when you can, uh, when that translates into something being well organized. And this is, you, I'm so glad you mentioned that time when we sat together after day one and uh, and we were sort of going over what, what we could do better for the next week or, or sort of what were the things that could go smoother. And one of the tiny things, not tiny actually, like a big need that came out from one of the participants was that she needed childcare. And uh, a member was who was present in that meeting was just like instantly raised her hand and she said that she'd be able to come in next week and take care of uh, of that that sort of demand. Um, and I think the writer, the the participant who brought her son in the next week was totally like heartwarmed that she could do that. Uh, and and there was someone available to just quickly cater to that need, which was again an incredible. A testament to the spirit of this community. Yeah, shout out to Laura McClure. Shout, yeah. shout out. I mean, yeah, that yeah. was kind of amazing and stunning because this one, this one woman said, you know, this has been really great, but I don't know if I can come back next week because I'm a single mom and I need childcare. And Laura just jumped up and said, I'll do it. And I, I, I was blown away because I was ready to say, oh, I'm really sorry. We just can't do that because we didn't have it in place. We hadn't discussed it. And um, it just happened, and I feel like that made a, a really big difference. Um, I, I one of the things that happened was I, I would call this a happy mistake, is that um, you know it took the first one took place they both took place on the weekend, and there's not a lot of places uh, that are open for lunch in the neighborhood. And so we made a big point of telling people to bring their own lunch because we didn't want people to be out wandering around and have to go too far away to find food. So they brought their own lunch and they basically brown bagged it in the spaces in the grotto, all the different spaces we have here. And they really, I think, created community over lunch. And that was one of the pieces of feedback that we got that, thank you so much for not having um, having us go out for lunch because we would have like wandered around in the neighborhood by ourselves. And this way we actually spoke with each other. We really, um, and, and just to see people um, in these incredibly animated conversations over lunch was really, really heartwarming. People bonded like instantly, so. It was interesting, I, I, you know, I like you. I overheard a few more than one say, "Hey, I need you know, give me your email. Let's stay in touch." You know, writing is a lo lonely endeavor, right? As it is in the, and it's just it sometimes is you take things for granted, but you think about other. It's almost like they didn't know that each other existed to to some degree. You know, they were, they're kind of locked in, and and they didn't realize, you know, oh, there's there's more folks like me, you know, out there. And it's not just it. I mean, it is about being a writer of color, but. It's also about the fact, just writing in general. Um, but I, I do think that because they don't have a place that they can gather or put together. I mean, there are events around the Bay Area, of course, but, you know, there just seem to be, you know, it's a lot of poetry events, I, I seem to think. But as far as, you know, writers in general being able to share ideas and discuss things, they just, there wasn't enough. And I just, it was great to see them kind of come together uh, just on their own without, you know, just kind of being around them. So that was a really interesting and really good. I think it's a good outcome all around. It was exciting to feel the whole vibe that day, but later it was exciting to hear what the organizers themselves got out of it as teachers. 
That's right. Susan and Jesus not only co-organized Rooted and Written, they also planned and taught classes for Rooted and Written participants. Let's learn a little more about what their classes were like. Susan, can you share a little bit about the class that you taught? Because it was one of the more popular classes. Uh, <laughs> I heard, I heard yes. a lot of participants um, really take, um, take inspiration from the idea about you taught a class about writing about family. Um, would love to know more about how that experience was sitting in that room with uh, your students. Hmm, thank you. Um, it was really moving. It was a really moving experience. Um, I teach an actually semester-long class on writing about family in an MFA program, and I was thinking, how am I going to boil down 16 weeks into two hours? And it was really challenging to figure out what is the core of this you know, of this material, and I, I knew that it would be particularly, or I thought it would be particularly resonant, and it was for many writers of color for whom writing about family can be really fraught in a different kind of way because of culture, because of feeling of, if I say the truth, am I betraying my people? You know, am I am I airing dirty laundry? What will my, what will my family say or think? And what are the things we need to, how can we do this? I mean, I think a lot of people just came to the table with a feeling of, I need to do this, I want to do this, but I'm afraid to do this, and all of the mixed feelings. And so I had this idea, and I've actually never done this in another class before, but I brought, um, I'm a little bit of a pack rat when it comes to paper things, and I have these shoe boxes filled with postcards that I've collected over the last 30 years. And so I brought the postcards in, and I said, pick a postcard, and just on a postcard-sized, in that little space, write a postcard to a family member of something that you want to say to them. It's like something they could do within a few minutes, but because it was so direct. And I was amazed. with It was maybe a 10-minute free write. They all picked their postcard. They wrote a letter. There were tears. There was, I mean, people accessed things that they wanted to say to family members so instantly and so deeply it really blew me away and and then we did something um, a little bit uh, more extended from that afterwards and we had a discussion about what does it mean to write about family and I think you know it was just a door opening we didn't you know the, clearly they, the majority of this work is going to hap happen afterwards but just the the postcard exercise I think was um, was really big, and um, I've heard from a lot of the participants that it continues to reverberate um, and, and is, is really influencing larger projects that they're working on now. So I was happy to be able to do this. It's, well, it's one of my personal obsessions, so I was happy to have company in working these things out and dealing with these questions. I think you gave them, you know, given them access, I think if the unfortunate thing was that you only had the, the the 12 or 13 people in your class versus if everybody could have taken that course. I think bottom line, I think they were all, what that says to me is that, you know, they're all here looking to unlock something, you know. They, there's some something about them that has just been uh, repressed, for lack of a better word, uh, or just forgotten or locked away. And you, gave, you gave them that avenue, yeah. And I, I'm sure if you had ran through all 35 the wall would have gone because they just there was this eagerness you know of, of wanting to be present you know for me I, that was the first class i ever taught 
And I'll, you know, there's a certain hesitation on my part, right? And it, not at all. People were just like so willing to discuss it. Really smart people in the group too. I mean, the discussion was lively. It was, it's you know, I know <clears throat> Susan had given me some tips on on how to teach a class and, and organize a class and so forth. And it was she said something. It's going to go by faster than you think. And, and sure enough, it was it was definitely fast. And one good thing was that I kept the time that you know. Time because it could have gone on for four hours. There was that sort of energy in the room. Jesus, tell us about your class. And well, it was, it was like that. It was. It was. Uh, it was the first page or the first. First page. Your first, first page. page. Right. It was actually I took it off of a, a, a seminar that I attended through my MFA uh, that was really beneficial to me. So what I did was I, I copied a, um, the first page of I picked five books and they were all writers of color. And it was really interesting. I had them read it beforehand, and, and send, I sent them material ahead of time so that we could have discussion and had them write twice uh, within the, the class. And it was really, um, really to me, is is the I would say the scholarship that they brought to the reading was just amazing. Um, you know, things that people, and that's what happens in group discussions, right? That's what I loved. It, I felt like I told them, I said, I'm, I'm more like a facilitator. I don't want to be up here professorial, you know, just let you guys in. And the discussion was lively and really interesting talk, and people seemed to, to really be engaged. Um, and a couple of them asking to send the materials ahead of time. So I was really pleased. It did, it did tremendous for me. It gave me a lot of confidence, for sure, as far as my ability to be able to do that again. Uh, uh, but. Um, no, I, plus, you, you know, in a room, it's different when, when it's an assigned class. Right? You're in school, you have to take this course. These people were there because they wanted to be there. And their attitude and their engagement certainly showed it all the way around. So, did you sit in any of the classes at DT at all? I did. Um, I sat in on a class on a, I, I mean, I don't write poetry. I've just about started dabbling with uh, with that writing form but I sat in on a class uh, which was a poetry writing class conducted by Ma uh, who's also a member here um, and just like the best energy Ma. Ma just has the best energy in a, in a classroom. It was incredible to see how uh, such in such little time such incredible stories can come out. I feel like when you I don't know how most writers might agree with me, but when you're on deadline, you're probably the most efficient. So when you have like two hours or lesser time uh, to get your get your brains working, there was just so much such empowering stories that came to the table. We were sitting, we're recording in this room, uh, which is the library here at the Grotto, and the class was right here, um, and it was. Uh, we, we, we went through this exercise where we paired up um, and each wrote a line uh, to, a, to, to start a poem and then it kept going on and on. So it was a great way for two otherwise strangers to get to know each other, but also uh, just to bring out like their, their deepest uh, selves onto paper. Um, and I guess uh, we had a reading uh, uh, at the end of uh, at the end of the workshop series, and safe to say that there were thousands of words, and they were all exceptional. Um, that was that was that was sort of the, the point of this was to 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 have a space where where the words can breathe and the voices can breathe, and uh, it was it was so incredible just to see both uh, both the teachers doing such a great job and the students and the participants actually I shouldn't call them students they were all participants because without them they weren't learning as much as they were kind of teaching us um, so it was it, it, it was exceptional to see how um, 
how everybody had such great stories to share and that they were they were waiting to share them with us. I'm so glad you had an opportunity to sit in um, with Moshin Wynn. Not only is she an amazing poet, she is a star at collaboration. Um, in fact, she, she is the biggest collaborator. She's always collaborating with dancers and musicians and visual artists and other writers. She's such a collaborator and she's so... She's so, so good at that. And she and I are actually teaching a class together, a collaborative class on collaborative poetry uh, in November. I think it's November 17th, um, where we're going to be making zines together and doing this sort of collaborative poetry. And um, she's so amazingly good at this. And uh, yeah, I'm so, so, I'm so glad you got to sit in on that. Um, you had mentioned the MFA, Jesus, and I know that there was some discussion within the um, within the workshops about people who have MFAs or thinking about getting MFAs, and I think it's one of those big um, controversial things. Like, do you need one? Is it is it necessary? Is it important? And I feel like we really wanted to emphasize that this is a place where you don't need an MFA and the grotto um, overall and um, and if you have one that's great and if but you don't need one to be um, a valued member of our community and I feel like our teaching um, program at the grotto is like the non-MFA MFA that's really high caliber high level professional writers and um, the depth of uh, instruction and inspiration you can get here is I think kind of unparalleled. So I know that was a big uh, conversation that came up during the during the weekend. Yeah, and I, and I think that they don't. I think the, the perception was that everybody that a couple of people might have mentioned and that that a lot of people were accepted had MFAs, and that's in fact not true. I mean, it wasn't there was true a handful at all. of MFAs, but the majority of them were not MFAs at all. Um, good writing is just good writing. I mean, period. It, it, it speaks for itself. It's not you know. I mean, you can have all the diplomas you want on the wall, but if your your work doesn't reflect quality, it just doesn't, you know. So I had a I had a I had a guy uh, I interviewed a, a a writer, and and he I remember asking him about that. He says, you know, I know I know some really really great writers who have never been published, and I know some real real crappy writers that have been published all over the place. So it really quality is quality. So I think you know I, I'm I'm hoping that part of this. Was to kind of unearth some sort some real diamonds that that are just been sitting there waiting to be discovered. Mm. Uh, Good I, writing feeds the soul, huh? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. We had we had um, we we had an internal sort of um, metric that we we lay in, we we laid down that we were what we were trying to bring out out of rooted and written was a lot of soul s o u l. Um, so I feel like that's what. That, that was what we felt during those three days as well and it was good to good to good to put a word to the feeling um, so that we could see it come to life uh, with rooted and written in summation rooted and written was a big step toward building and sustaining a community for writers of color and fulfilling part of the grotto's larger mission to foster a deeply inclusive literary culture that elevates writers of all backgrounds so, I mean, overall, our goal was to bring more writers of color to the grotto and to bring the grotto out into the greater community and to have more um, more interaction and more intersection. We're hoping to grow the grotto. We're hoping that some of our particip 
participants will want to become grotto members and and to to just like see this as um, the place where they feel welcome and included and that they have a home here and that um, yeah our demographics next time we do our demographics will be will be shifting and um, make us all richer for it yeah I think I feel like we like we were did was like yodeling, you know. They finally heard us, right? <laughs> like it's yodeling. Like, Whoa, they're in the other mountain now. They can, they know we're there. And that, to me, that was a big deal. That just how answered my question as to what's going to be, um, you know, how do they, how do people of color even hear about the grotto? And I think this went a long way to get the word out. Um, and just the idea that more, I mean, it's thirty-five people and all the people that that were not the hundred and sixty applicants all know about it now. Mm-hmm. And so it goes beyond the thirty-five that showed up here. So I think the idea, I think it's a great first step to cast that net far and wide. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with the conference. And I have to say that, you know, we ha- I have to, hats off to Roberto, who's not here to talk for himself, but he was the idea man behind it all. But uh, I really do think that it was, an, it was a complete team effort, including the whole community, really. The whole you know, grotto really whole stepped grotto, up for yeah. this. And, you know, from offering childcare to coming and doing registration and folding tote bags and you know mm-hmm. filling in and we we just had so much um really loving support from right. our community which right. which was wonderful i think we built uh, we laid the foundation for a really strong community and now we're in the phase of keeping each one of us engaged uh, so we've gone from community building to engagement and we are definitely working or, or have we, we do intend to work doubly hard towards 2020 rooted and written uh, to make it uh, better and definitely bigger because what what matters is to have as many people who are seeking community and space find it um, and and we we want to make sure that, uh, that that we do all that we, we can to make it possible so I have a question for you Melissa you seem to be the person keeping the trains running on time at the event when I was there. What were you tracking with that notebook? I was basically doing the behind-the-scenes work of jotting down participants' feedback so we can expand on the work we began with Rooted and Written and make it even better next year. I was also keeping time to make sure we stuck to the schedule, which ended with a pretty epic photo shoot. And uh, make some noise, guys. And that's our show for today. Thanks, Melissa, for coming by. Grottopod is produced by me, Susie Gerhardt, and importantly, others. George Higgins, Ben Marks, Daniel Pierce, and Beth Weingarner. The music is by Sugartown. Grottopod is concocted in-house at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. Please review and subscribe to Grottopod in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.